Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. I'd like to kick things off this week with something a little different and not strictly podcast-related. Our very own Pete Morsellino has signed up for a very meaningful challenge, something called the Ration Challenge, and he needs our support. For one week, from June 13th to 19th, Pete will eat the same rations as a Syrian refugee living in a camp in Jordan. Just a small amount of rice, flour, lentils, chickpeas, beans, fish or tofu, and oil. That's it. No coffee, no sugar, 
none of the usual creature comforts we are used to. As somebody privileged enough to be born and raised in a first world country, that sounds pretty tough to me. The money raised by Pete's participation in this challenge goes toward helping to bring emergency food, health care, and life-saving support to people who need it most. By helping Pete hit his goals, you'll be helping to make lives for people who've lost everything just a little more bearable, and also giving Pete access to additional rewards he can redeem for extras to make the week a little less daunting. We don't often share things like this on the show, but this is such an amazing cause, and I'd love to help Pete make as big of an impact as he can. I really hope you'll join me. If you'd like to contribute, visit rationchallengeusa.org, click the Sponsor Someone button, and search Pete Morsellino. I've also put a link in the show notes. Again, that's rationchallengeusa.org. I'd love it if we can rally around him and have a great showing for this worthy cause. While we're on the topic of supporting, I'd like to give a very special shout-out to Kathy Robinson, a.k.a. Deadly Blonde, for so generously upping her Patreon pledge. You're an absolute star, Kathy, and we appreciate it so much. Thanks for helping us make this podcast great. If you'd like to check out everything our Patreon has in store, and maybe sign up yourself, visit patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you can explore all of the perks and support levels, which include everything from ad-free episodes to merch. Merch. Hmm. Uh, there was something I was going to tell you about merch. Ah, uh, yes. Our latest contest. As of Saturday, May 15th, our newest contest is officially open. This one's for all of you whose creative spirits lie more in the visual than the literary. We're hosting Tales to Terrify's first-ever t-shirt design contest in partnership with Tee Public. One of the things I love most about horror fiction is the way it allows your imagination to run wild to conjure the most horrifying and disturbing images that dance behind your eyelids in the middle of the night. Well, now's your chance to scrawl those images onto paper or screen and have them turned into something others can wear proudly. We're looking for the most fun and frightening design to feature on our Tee Public store. It could be inspired by your favorite Tales to Terrify story, or birthed from possessed scribblings while listening to the show. Hell, do your best to reimagine our logo, or make a terrifying caricature of your favorite author. The options are endless. If it's horror-inducing, yet hopefully tasteful, we want to see it. And what will you get for your trouble if your design is crowned the winner? Other than undying fame and gratitude, of course, the grand prize winner will receive a fabulous and mysterious Tea Public gift pack, brimming with the most delightfully terrible things you can imagine. Visit talestoterrify.com slash design contest for all of the contest details and to submit your entry. Once the contest is in full swing, that's also where you can go to peruse the designs that have been submitted so far. 
Again, that's talestoterrify.com slash design contest. The contest closes midnight on June 6th, so time to get scratching. This week is our second last stop in the province of Ontario. We've lingered around these parts for a while, but as the most populous province in the country, there's just so much dark history to explore. This evening, we find ourselves not far from the city of London, Ontario, and the township of Biddulph. In the mid-1800s, southwestern Ontario was an untamed, often treacherous place. Homesteading the area was a constant fight against the land and the elements. The majority of families that put down roots along the road known as the Roman Line had struggled their way across the ocean from Ireland, fleeing the aftermath of the Great Potato Famine. And while Canada was a welcome change, most soon found their bright dreams of a new life of prosperity and opportunity shadowed by hardship and conflict. To survive the hard land took even harder people, and few families were harder than the Donnellys. The farther one lives down Roman Line Road, the tougher one is, went the local saying, and the Donnellys live at the end of the road. You can imagine the surprise and misfortune of new immigrant Patrick Farrell when he arrived from Ireland with a freshly purchased land title in hand, only to discover the area's most infamous family squatting on his land. In fairness, the land had sat idle for years before he purchased it. Farrell, of course, confronted the family patriarch, James Donnelly, and in no uncertain terms told him to get his family off the land. And as I'm sure you can imagine, it wasn't a conversation that went well. James Donnelly was not a large man, but his reputation for being hard as nails and speaking with his fists was one Farrell experienced firsthand. Rather than give up the homestead he and his wife had worked so hard to clear and build, Donnelly had, well, he'd kicked the crap out of Patrick Farrell. Bloodied and embarrassed, Farrell eventually decided a more civilized approach would be in his favor. So he took Donnelly to court. The judge, though, decided on a compromise. The Donnellys had put a lot of work into clearing the land over the years, after all, making it habitable. So the judge split the land. For a tiny fee, the Donnellys were allowed to keep the section with their home, and Farrell was entitled to the rest. And in the nature of a good compromise, nobody was happy. But true to form, it was Donnelly whose frustration burned brightest. According to Farrell, Donnelly would regularly attack his property, killing livestock, setting his barn on fire, and even one time firing a rifle at him. The tensions between the two men came to a head one afternoon during a barn raising. Warm weather, hard work, and free-flowing alcohol made for quick tempers. And after a few choice words were exchanged between the neighbors, the fists began to fly. Farrell was tall and burly, 
and after his previous pummeling at the hands of Donnelly, no doubt he had a sizable chip on his shoulder. He rained down punches on Donnelly, driving him to the ground with meaty fists. Donnelly was smaller, but he was as tough as they come, and not afraid to fight dirty either. So when he felt the metal handspike in the dirt left from the barn raising, his fingers wrapped around it without hesitation. Without warning, he lunged from the ground up toward the larger man and drove the handspike into the side of Farrell's skull. Fistfights and late-night arson were one thing, but murdering a man in broad daylight surrounded by townspeople, no matter how drunk you are, that's not something you can just walk away from. Not to say James Donnelly didn't do his best. While everyone was still reeling from the violent act, he fled into the forest. For the better part of a year, he managed to evade the watchful eye of the law. Although there were reports of a strange, burly woman in a bonnet working the fields alongside Donnelly's wife and sons. Eventually, though, after spending a winter in the woods, James turned himself in and was sentenced to seven years in Kingston Penitentiary. During those years, his wife Joanna and their sons worked to keep the farm afloat. Joanna was no helpless, delicate flower herself, and any boy of hers was going to be a fighter if she had anything to say about it. Under her watchful eye, the boys didn't just learn to fight, they learned to fight dirty. Hit first, talk later, she told them, and it was a lesson they took to heart. By the time James Donnelly was released from prison, his family had earned a reputation as thieves and vandals. They took what they wanted, and if they met resistance, or were reported to the authorities, the victims would often find their barns mysteriously burned down, or their cattle poisoned, or their horses mutilated, which made many people question whether it was worth reporting in the first place. The Black Donnellys, as they'd come to be known, were almost as feared as they were hated. With the senior Donnelly now back at home, the violent, lawless behavior only escalated. Barns burned, coaches were destroyed, horses died, and even the post office of a nearby town was robbed. And yet somehow, even when prosecuted, the charges just never seemed to stick. Through all of that, though, the Donnellys managed to be surprisingly enterprising, too. Several of the boys got married and started, quote-unquote, honest livings, including creating a new family stagecoach business led by James's son, William. And the business was a lucrative one. But with success comes competition. And I'm sure you can imagine how the Donnellys felt about that. There was one main competitor in the stagecoach business, but after the previous owner gave into pressure from the Donnellys, he sold the business to a man named Patrick Flanagan, a huge bull of an Irishman with little fear of the Donnellys. Again, the Donnellys weren't ones to share their success, and with a competitor that wasn't willing to simply back down, 
Well, the feud that erupted became one of the most violent periods in the history of the township. For a while, it seemed like nearly every other day, a fistfight broke out, a barn was satellite, or livestock was attacked. Until finally, the tensions reached a boiling point. When Flanagan pulled open the wide barn doors one morning to prepare his coach for that day's route, his heart sunk to his stomach. Sometime during the night, someone had snuck into his barn and taken saws to the coach, cutting up the axles, demolishing the cabin, and making kindling of the wheels. The coach was trashed, and when he went to check on his horses, he found they, too, had been mutilated. There was no question in his mind who'd done the deed, and given the ever-growing dislike for the Donnelly family, Flanagan had no problem assembling a posse. As the furious men approached the Donnelly's barn, two words rang out from the head of the group. William Donnelly! A grizzled cry that echoed through the empty farmyard, dripping with murderous intent. But no sooner had it left Flanagan's lips than a commotion erupted from the direction of the house. James Donnelly Sr. and his boys burst from the home, clubs in hand, and ran at the small mob. The Donnellys were outnumbered three to one, but they were absolutely ruthless, too. William Donnelly knew Flanagan would come to claim his retribution, and they were prepared. Caught off guard, the posse was driven off of the property, bruised and beaten. The high the Donnellys felt after their victory didn't last long, though. In the early hours of February 4, 1880, a group of men calling themselves the Biddulph Peace Society, led by Constable James Carroll, knocked on the door of the Donnelly homestead. The elder Donnelly answered the door to find his son Tom handcuffed in the dirt in front of the doorstep, surrounded by men. Without a word, the young constable dragged Tom into the house and tossed him into a chair in the kitchen, leaving behind a faint waft of alcohol. James Sr. was fuming. How dare this man accost his son and enter his home? But the sheer number of armed men out front of his house gave him rare cause to keep his temper at least slightly in check. You better have a damn warrant, James demanded, looking from the constable to his son. The burly younger Donnelly had been roughed up fresh bruises blooming on his cheeks and forehead, lips split. Constable here, he thinks he's smart, said Tom, grinning through bloody teeth. And surprisingly, Constable Carroll smiled too. Then he whistled, and all hell broke loose. The back door leading into the kitchen burst open, and through it flooded twenty-five men, armed with clubs and spades. They beat James Sr. unconscious and left him lying by the stove, blood pouring from his split head. And when Joanna came into the kitchen, they turned their vicious assault on her, too. In the commotion, though, 
Tom, still handcuffed, seized the opportunity to barrel past the men, tearing the hinges from the kitchen door and escaping out the back. He only made it ten paces before a pitchfork was thrust through his back, and he was smashed over the head with a shovel. His bloodied, writhing form was tossed back into the house. He lay on the wooden floor, moaning. Hit him on the head, one of the men yelled. Split his skull! And with the swift strike of a spade, like an axe falling, the deed was done. Where's the girl? Someone shouted. And moments later, a group of men ascended the stairs and snuffed out the life of the Donnelly's visiting cousin, Bridget, as well. They poured coal oil on the bed and set it alight, then stormed out of the house. Little did they know, a young farmhand named Johnny had spent the night at the Donnelly's home and was now hiding under that very bed. As the flames began to soar, he managed to sneak out from the bed, crawl down the stairs, and out the back door. The sole survivor of the massacre. The mob, now with a deep thirst for Donnelly blood, moved on to William Donnelly's house nearby, and murdered the rest of the family they found there, too. Despite the eyewitness of the young farmhand Johnny, no one was ever found guilty of the murders. But the deeds themselves have weighed heavy in the conscience of the survivors for generations. To this day, there are those in the Bedolf area who refuse to speak of it. And the homestead itself, unsurprisingly, it continues to play host to endless haunted happenings. From strange noises and objects moving on their own, to spectral forms and apparitions in the night. No matter how evil the victims were, with acts fueled by such deep fear and hatred, it's no wonder that the massacre of the Black Donnellys has left a scar on the area that's outlasted entire generations. Our first story for the evening comes from Kevin Moreno. Kevin Moreno unfortunately doesn't have time to list all of his accomplishments. He's already drawn their attention. If you're still looking for him when he makes it out alive, he'll be writing from a window seat in New Jersey. Children of the Night, join me for Kevin Moreno's The Well, a Tales to Terrify original. don't drink the water from the well anymore. Not since Mama told me it comes from the government. And she always says, the government lies. Sarah says Mama exaggerates, but she just doesn't like liars, and neither do I. 
One time, in first grade, Connor Riley hit me for no reason. I didn't even do nothing to him. I think he was mad because his mom caught his dad being sweet with another woman. I hit him back, of course, because Mama says not to be treaded on. Except Ms. Gallo saw me do it, and when I tried to tell her Connor hit me first, he said he didn't. He lied, and I got in trouble for it. I don't like liars. So I, I don't drink the water from the well on account of it coming from liars. Buddy drank it once, on accident. Buddy's my golden retriever, you know. We was playing down in the basement. That's where the well is. We was playing down there, and he was panting a lot. His big, silly tongue was hanging out the side of his mouth. And when I pant, it's because I'm thirsty, and so he must have been thirsty. I'm not supposed to use the well anymore, but Mama locked the door because she was upstairs playing with her friend, and I can't reach the sink down there. I didn't think I could move the block off the lid, but I did. I filled one of Mama's gardening buckets with well water and gave it to Buddy. He really was thirsty because he drank the whole thing, see? Mama was so mad when she came down and saw. I wasn't allowed to play in the basement for a week. And Buddy ran away, and then I had no one to play in the basement with. I used to play down there with Sarah. She's my sister. But then she disappeared. Anyway, Mama got another new friend. His name is Calvin, and he's an officer just like you. I asked Mama if he works for the government, and she said technically, but he's a good one. I don't think he is. I think he's a liar. He's sweet with Mama. He buys her things and gives her kisses on the mouth, and they play upstairs. But one time, I was on the bus, and I saw him being sweet with another lady. They were kissing on the mouth, just like he does with Mama. And I told Mama about it, and she called me a liar. But I'm not a liar. Calvin was so mad when he found out. He locked me in the basement, but I had no one to play with. I shouted and shouted, until he finally came down those steps. And that's when I saw him with his belt tied up in a knot. He started hitting me, but Mama always says not to be treaded on. I pushed him, and I think he tripped on that block, you know, because next thing I knew, he disappeared too, right down the well, just like Sarah. I don't drink the water from the well anymore. It's filled with liars. That was Kevin Moreno's The Well, as read by Sarah Mayra. Sarah Mayra is a native New Yorker who currently resides much closer to the Mason-Dixon line than she ever thought possible. When not spending time with her husband and two teenagers, she can be found listening to horror podcasts or doing yoga to de-stress from listening to horror podcasts and living with two teenagers. Thank you, Sarah. 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Our second story tonight comes from Michelle Ann King. Michelle Ann King is the author of the short story collections Possibly Nefarious Purposes, Transient Tales, and Shallow Cuts. Her stories of fantasy, science fiction, crime, and horror have appeared in over a hundred different venues, including Strange Horizons, Interzone, Black Static, and Orson Scott Card's Intergalactic Medicine Show. She currently lives with her husband in Essex, England. Listen with me, children of the night, to Michelle Ann King's Dead Bodies Don't Scream, first published in Tales from the Lake, Volume 5, by Crystal Lake Publishing, November 2018. Allie takes the bowl of cold, congealed chicken noodle soup off her sister's bedside table and replaces it with a fresh, hot one. She tells herself that the level in the old one has gone down and that Ray has eaten some of it. That might be true. She also tells herself that her sister's color is better today, her eyes brighter. That's not. Ray coughs, a bubbling underwater sound. The force of it lifts her halfway off the bed, and when she finally drops back, panting and limp, her lips are bright with blood. Allie sinks to the floor beside the bed, the taste of despair bitter and metallic in her throat. This isn't right. Some people might be meant to come to a squalid, meaningless end. Allie herself, for example. She'd accept that, but not Ray. She's the useful one, the one who learned to be normal, functioning member of society. Things like this aren't supposed to happen to people like her. 
She should have a miracle, a a medical breakthrough, a pioneering treatment, an experimental drug, something, anything. Instead, she got nothing but grave-faced regret, and I'm sorry, but there's nothing more we can do. She got a musty bedroom, a surrender of hope, and a long, slow wait. It isn't right. It isn't right. Allie wipes her eyes, then stands back up and kisses Ray's hair. I'll be back soon, she says. Because the universe doesn't care about right and wrong. She's always known that. It doesn't care about fairness or justice or providing miracles. If you need any of those things, you have to go and get them for yourself. Parents, grandparents, siblings, cousins, all of them have dropped out of the picture over the years, either into prison or the grave. Uncle Fraser, who might be an actual uncle or might not, is the only thing resembling family they have left. He lives in a studio flat in a development on the river that was supposed to be part of an urban regeneration program, but long since gave way to entropy and disinterest. Now it's the kind of place where taxis won't go and kids post dog turds through the letterboxes like junk mail. He's 54 but looks two decades older, thin and pale like some kind of nocturnal animal. But he's still alive, which has to count for something. Better genes, perhaps? Or better drugs? Even when they were kids, Ray never believed the stories about him. But Ray's always managed to live in a different world than Allie, one where things make sense and logic prevails. I'm sorry about your sister, Fraser says now. His voice sounds rusty, as if he doesn't use it often. But I can't help her. You know that. Allie shakes her head, because that's not what she knows. He sighs. Allie, all that stuff your mother told you was just a stupid game. It was just a game, a stupid game, an excuse to take drugs and have sex. It wasn't real. I know it went wrong before, she says, aiming for gentleness. I know people got hurt, but he runs a hand through his stringy gray hair and won't look at her. Allie, I can't. Okay, fuck gentle. She hasn't got time for it. Ray hasn't got time. She grabs his coat, filthy, ratty thing that smells of wet dog, and throws it at him. But it was 30 fucking years ago, Fraser. It's time to get over it. Let's go. He still won't meet her eyes. I'm sorry, I really am, but there's nothing I can... Allie hauls her arm back and punches him in the face. Because she's fucked if she's listening to that anymore. It's a good punch, thrown with accuracy and vigor that connects solidly with his jaw. His head snaps back and he goes down hard. She crouches beside him. Spilled sugar crunches under her boots. It's just a healing spell, Fraser. Just healing, that's all. There's still a price, he says, and his voice is broken. There's always a price. That's fine, she says, straightening up again. I'll pay it. You don't know what that means. You don't understand. Allie shrugs. He's probably right, but she doesn't care. Let's go, she says again, 
and this time he doesn't argue. Ray is asleep when they get back. Allie starts moving the bowls and glasses out of the way, then sees the bottle of vodka and the bottles of pills on the floor by the bed. The empty bottle of vodka. The empty bottles of pills. Oh, shit. Fraser says softly. Allie grabs hold of Ray's arms and hoists her into a sitting position. There's a folded piece of paper in her hand. No, Allie says. No, no, no. The note is terse and barely legible. It's better this way, is all it says. The fuck it is, Allie says, but Ray doesn't respond. Her skin is cold, her limbs heavy. Allie puts a hand on her chest and a cheek against her lips, but there's no movement, no breath. Eventually, Fraser puts a hand on Allie's shoulder. I'm so sorry, he says. What can I do? Do you want me to start making the calls? What calls? The police. The hospital. They'll need... No. She stands up and crumples Ray's note to a ball. Nothing's changed. We carry on. We just need a different kind of spell now. He let out a short, explosive exhalation, as if he's been punched in the gut. Oh, oh Allie. No. Yes, Allie says. Understand me, Fraser. You're not walking out of this room unless she does. He doesn't answer, but he knows she means it. She can see the truth of it in her own eyes reflected in his. His shoulders sag. This is bad magic, Allie. Really bad. The power for resurrection? It literally means dealing with a demon. And it'll go bad. It always goes bad. Allie feels her lips stretch into a grin. I never expected to get old, Fraser. Do what you have to do. For a second, he looks at her as if he's wondering whether he's got the guts to kill her himself. But in the end, he does as he's told. It hurts letting a demon possess you. It hurts like fuck. But Allie can handle pain. She's done it before. Grit your teeth. Focus. Breathe. Her insides are burning as if the blood's been set alight in her veins. Sweat stands out on her skin, drips into her eyes. That burns too. Grit. Focus. Breathe. Scream if you have to. She can hear Fraser talking, but can't make out the words. She vomits green, which makes her laugh, because really, what a cliche. Then choke. Fraser helps her stand up and walk over to Ray's bed. His eyes are wide, the pupils huge and black. People have looked at her with fear before, but not quite to this extent. She kind of likes it. He takes her hand and puts it on Ray's forehead. She looks down and is amazed to see that her body is still made of flesh and blood instead of blackened, charred bone. Grit. Focus. Scream. Ray screams too. Ray screams long and hard. It's not supposed to be this bad, is it? Not for her? Allie was prepared to suffer. But this wasn't part of the plan. Ray is supposed to be getting better, not shrieking in agony. 
Fraser is no use. Either he doesn't know or he's simply too scared to speak. It goes bad, he'd said. Was this what he meant? And it's too late to worry about that now. Too late to back out. At some point, the police come. Allie sends Fraser down to get rid of them, and by some miracle he does. She doesn't know how. If she were a cop, she wouldn't find Fraser a reassuring presence. Maybe he pays them off. Maybe he mind controls them. Maybe he slits their throats and buries them in the back garden. She doesn't care. Ray carries on shrieking over and over. The sound hurts Allie's ears and her heart. But she keeps reminding herself it's a good thing. Dead bodies don't scream, after all. Allie wakes up on the floor with a foul taste in her mouth and pain spiking behind her eyes. She struggles to orient herself. Where is she? What happened? Is she in trouble? But her memory doesn't want to comply. It's not the first time she's had this experience. Usually, she almost enjoys it. A few moments of tabula rasa with no guilt or regret. She's often wondered if amnesia would be like this. Or dying. Then she sees Fraser watching her, and it all comes back. He's huddled in a corner, his knees drawn up to his chest and his back resting against the wall. He eyes her warily. She clamors slowly to her feet. Where's Ray? Downstairs. Is she... She trails off, not knowing how to complete the question, not knowing exactly what it is she's trying to ask. He shrugs as if that's an answer. Maybe it is. She finds her sister sitting at the kitchen table with an untouched cup of coffee by her side. She looks exhausted, but alive. <laughs> alive! Allie waits, although she's not entirely sure for what. A hug? A punch? Ray says nothing at all, so Allie pours herself the rest of the coffee. It's strong and bitter and hurts her throat, but she forces herself to finish it. It feels important, a symbolic act. Here we are, having breakfast. Life goes on. So, Ray says eventually, what does this mean? Allie gives her an inquiring look. In what sense? In every sense. Does anyone else know? What are we going to say happened to me? Misdiagnosis? Spontaneous remission? The power of prayer? What are the practicalities? Is there a limit on how long I get? Or you? Did you sell your soul? Ten years of your life? Your firstborn? Are there conditions? Do I need to stay out of the sun or drink blood now? Do I turn into a pumpkin at midnight? Come on, Allie. What are the logistics of this thing? Allie can't help laughing. Logistics? At least she knows it's definitely Ray that came back. Only she would think like that. She spreads her hands. You're here. You're alive. Does any of the rest of it matter? Ray gives her a look. An old, familiar look that says, If you don't understand, I can't explain it to you. Fraser comes into the kitchen, and she gives him a look, too. A different, but no less familiar one. You shouldn't have done this. 
I know, he says. Believe me, I know. You're alive, Hallie says again. Fuck logistics and practicalities and whatever else. You're alive. We did a good thing here. Am I the only one who thinks that? The other two look at each other, but not at her. Apparently, yes, she is. In the end, Ray worries for nothing. Nobody asks any awkward questions at all. Not even the hospital. God bless the inefficiency of the NHS. Allie fields the few phone calls from friends and colleagues who've never been told the full story anyway. With platitudes and vague references to a long bout of glandular fever, they're all pleased to hear that Ray's on the mend and go away satisfied with Allie's assurances that she'll be in touch when she's back on her feet. There you go, she says. It's fine. And it is. It's all fine. Okay, so she has nightmares and a near-constant headache and sometimes sees things that aren't there, but she can handle it. And her eyes have turned a pale, icy blue, which is a bit freaky, admittedly, but it suits her. It's fine. Ray starts fretting about epilepsy, about brain damage, but Hallie dismisses her concerns. There's nothing going on that she hasn't lived through after a hundred drug and booze binges in the past. The fluttering in her chest, the heat in her skin, the pressure behind her eyes. It's nothing new, nothing strange, nothing to worry about. Her little flick knife is a comfort. She runs her thumb over the edge, enjoying the feel of it, the potential of it. Fire helps, too. External heat seems to draw out the heat inside her, calm it down. One day she lights the hob, turns the gas up high, and puts her hand into the flame. Remembering a vision of stripped, scorched bone. Her palm blisters and weeps, but there's no pain. She's vaguely disappointed. By the time Ray has finished yelling at her and fetched the first aid kit, the burns have already healed. It's fine, Allie tells her one last time. Ray doesn't argue, but the look in her eyes isn't relief. It's horror. What have you done? She whispers. Allie, what have you done? Allie doesn't answer. She doesn't know how. Fraser answers the door in a stained shirt, an unlit cigarette hanging out of his mouth. Wow, he says. Oh, you look like shit. Thanks, Allie says and shoulders past him. Kind of you to say so. The flat is littered with bottles of booze. Most are empty, but not all. Allie grabs a liter of supermarket gin and uncaps it. Ground rules for this conversation. Number one... You do not say I told you so at any point. Understood? Fraser's face turns grave. What happened? Allie takes a long, burning swallow of the gin. It's still in me. What? Whatever you called down that night to perform the resurrection, it didn't leave. Shit, he says. That's shit. Yeah, thanks. I got that far on my own. Any other thoughts? He rubs his chin, his hand rasping over gray stubble. Has it made contact? Allie laughs. 
The sound comes out high and strange, and she's glad when it stops. Yeah, you could say that. It's in my head, Fraser. What does it want? All the usual. Pain, suffering, torment. He steps toward her. Oh, Allie. Don't. She backs away, her hand held up, then clenches it into a fist. The nails bite into her palm, leaving little crescents of blood. It's getting bored with my pain. That's the trouble. She looks away. I'm frightened, Fraser. I'm frightened about what it might make me do. I can feel it, looking out through my eyes. And it keeps looking at Ray. Shit, he says again. I'm not going to take the chance that it might do something to her. Not after we've come this far. She empties the bottle and coughs. Her throat feels like it's been sandpapered. So how do we get rid of it? I have no idea. She stares at him. What? He starts pacing the room. Since it's so tiny, he has to turn around every six steps, and it's making Allie dizzy to watch him. I don't know, Allie. I did some shit when I was younger because I was a fucking idiot who didn't know any better, but that doesn't make me a goddamn expert. I put together a ritual out of spit and sellotape, and quite frankly, I was fucking shocked that it worked. I don't know how to fix this. So make it up, Allie says. She's been grinding her teeth in her sleep lately, and her jaw is aching. If you made it up last time and it worked, do it again. Come on, for fuck's sake! We've all seen the films. He lets out a sharp burst of laughter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've seen plenty. And you know what? They don't end well. Oh, and in case you hadn't noticed, I'm not a priest. I haven't got a stash of holy water and incense in the cupboard. I haven't even got a fucking Bible. So what am I supposed to do? Wander down to St. Dominic's and ask if they can fit in a quick exorcism between the christenings and the Women's Institute jumble sale? He slumps into a filthy armchair. I don't even think Catholics do it anymore. Or maybe I'm just taking that from the films as well. I don't know. I don't know. She kneels down in front of the chair. Try, please, Fraser, just try. He blows out a long, whistling breath, closes his eyes, and puts his hand on her head. In the name. He starts, but that's all Allie hears before she blacks out. There's no comforting drift when she comes back this time, no brief moment of floaty, undemanding peace. She's slammed straight back into full awareness of the blood in her mouth, the pain in every part of her body, and the demon laughing in her head. Yeah, it says. The voice sounds like her own. That's not gonna work. The flick knife is in her hand. She's not sure when that happened. Kill him, the voice says. Kill him, and I'll leave you alone. Fraser's eyes widen, and she wonders if he heard it too. Liar, she says, and it laughs again. The sound is like snakes hissing directly into her brain. Kill him. Kill him now, Allie. You'll enjoy it. I promise. I'm sorry, Fraser says, 
His face is drawn and gray. I don't know what to do. It's okay, she says. I do. The hand still clutching the knife twitches. It wants to rise, so she lets it. Tell Ray I'm sorry, she adds, although she's not entirely sure what for. Then she sticks the knife into the soft flesh under her jaw and drags it across her throat. She understands why Ray looked so exhausted now. Coming back from the dead is a fuck of a thing. Ray takes her home, gives her a measured dose of prescription painkillers and a judgmental attitude, as if she herself hadn't been the first suicide. Hers might have been less messy, true, but as far as Allie's concerned, the moral high ground is actually pretty low. And through it all, the demon laughs itself stupid. Noble sacrifice isn't that fulfilling, it says. I'm still hungry. Fuck you, she says, and it sets her insides on fire. She used to think that she knew what pain was. She didn't have a fucking clue. She makes Ray and Fraser tighter to the bed. Although she's fairly certain the demon could get her out of the restraints if it wanted to. But the gesture makes her feel a bit better at least. It's fine, she says. I'll just be the mad woman in the attic. Or the guest room, whatever. Every good family should have one, right? They don't seem to find this funny, but Allie thinks you've got to keep a good sense of humor about these things. She keeps thinking that right up until the bed rots away from underneath her. It's too powerful, Fraser says. The evil. Your body can't contain it. If it isn't, he swallows, vented, it's going to keep building up. And then it'll, well, it'll leak. The smell in the room is bad. Allie lived in a squat once, a place that had flooded and had been declared uninhabitable until it dried. This reminds her of that house, a pervasive wet mold filling her nostrils and catching at the back of her throat. The wallpaper peels away, revealing a layer of spotty black fungus on the plaster. The carpet squelches underfoot. Food goes bad within ten minutes of being brought into the room. Allie learns to eat fast. I'll go back to Fraser's, she says. That whole block is such a dump anyway, nobody will notice. They don't seem to think that's funny either. In fairness, nor does Allie. The demon, however, thinks it's all hilarious. Typhoid Allie, it says, and giggles. She catches on about 30 seconds before Fraser starts coughing. Fuck, she says. Come on, this is enough. Enough. Not for me. Fraser's panting for breath like he's just run a marathon, and his skin is sallow and clammy. Allie tries to help Ray lift him, but he screams when her hand touches his skin and vomits blood over his shirt. Ray shoos her away and drags him out of the room herself. Allie goes to the window. The front garden's been neglected for a while now. The once neat lawn choked with tall, vicious-looking weeds. As she watches, they begin to turn brown. All right. All right, she says. You win. I'll do it. Do what, Missy? 
I like specifics. I'll kill for you. If that'll make it stop, I'll do it. No, Ray says from the doorway. From somewhere behind her, Fraser starts retching again. Allie rests her aching forehead on the glass. If I'm going to be the kiss of death anyway, then better some scumbag off the street than your neighbors. Or somebody who just happens to wander past and get too close. I know plenty of people the world won't miss, Ray. Better we lose a dealer or a pimp than Fraser or you. Ray's voice is eerily calm. No, it's not. This is my fault, Allie, because I was supposed to die. So I have to be the one that dies now, to put it right. No, no way. That's not how this works. It has to be. Ray strides into the room and grabs her wrist. Kill me. You have to. That's the way we make it stop. Allie yanks her arm out of Ray's grip. I said no, and for fuck's sake, keep away from me. Too late, Ray says, and now her voice is gentle. Kiss of death anyway, remember? She lifts up the bottom of her shirt, and Allie looks away. But that's too late as well. She can't unsee the gray and flaking skin, the blisters spilling greenish, blood-speckled fluid. You fucker, she tells the voice in her head. You lying, cheating fucker. It giggles and the sound swallows everything for a while. When Allie can hear properly again, the air is filled with the dissonant warble of an ambulance siren. She checks the window and sees it's pulled up to the house across the street, blue lights flashing. Allie, Ray's voice says, you need to do this quickly, or it's just going to keep getting worse. In her hand is a long-bladed kitchen knife. She holds it out. Take it, she says. It's a command. Allie's fingers feel numb, but she watches them close around the handle. The knuckles turn white. Ray stretches out on the floor and pats her chest. Here, into the heart. It'll be quick, and then this will be over. Allie kneels beside her as more sirens join their discordant voices to the first. Ray smiles and closes her eyes. It's all right. No, it's not. Allie says, but she raises the knife anyway. She stays kneeling on the floor for a long time. Eventually, she'll have to get up. There are things she needs to do. Practicalities to take care of. Logistics. She laughs, and it comes out as a sob. But the flames inside her body, her mind, have gone out. And there are no more sirens. For a while, the demon says. Allie freezes. Beside her, Ray's body arches off the floor. Her mouth opens wide and her eyes fly open. She screams, high and loud. The laughter in Allie's head this time is more of a sated, indolent chuckle. <laughs> you wanted me to bring her back, it says. That was the deal, wasn't it? I'm just doing what you wanted. Allie pushes herself to her feet, and her foot kicks the knife, sending it skittering away across the room. Good choice, the demon says. We can try a more hands-on approach next time. Strangulation is always fun. Or guns, 
I like guns. Grace sits up, gasping and choking. Her skin is smooth and unblemished. There's a sound like a yawn, and Allie can imagine something stretching sinuously behind her eyes. Don't fret. <laughs> it says with that soft, amused laugh. We'll have plenty of time to try them all. That was Michelle Ann King's Dead Bodies Don't Scream, as read by Michelle Kane. Michelle is from the Kansas City metropolitan area. She has a dulcimer and a baudrin that she doesn't have time to play because she spends her time working in a cube farm and being a mom to her six-year-old son and 11-year-old Labrador, and, of course, narrating stories when she has the chance. She can be found on Twitter at Shell Davis 72. Thank you, Michelle. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. If you're not a supporter already, head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks, from ad-free episodes and bonus content, to shoutouts and merch packs. Every dollar helps, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put a smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales. You can share your love of the show out in the world, too, with some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will shoot you over to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy, custom, and curated designs that's always growing so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, Brian Rollins, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we reanimate the dead with more Tales to Terrify.
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.